Sorry, I just realized I was muted. I was talking that whole time and y'all couldn't even hear me. Uh, good morning is what I was saying. Happy to be here is what I was saying. I was uh, listening to the music, letting it kind of groove me in. And I think that's why I forgot to take myself off mute. So good morning. Um, very excited that you guys are here joining us. Um, this is the special episode of our A Girl Like Me Live, focusing on women like us. And who are women like us? Women aging positively with HIV. So this is our new programming that focuses on women that are in the 50s and above aging with HIV. So welcome to this special platform. I know some of you were expecting CC, but you got me. So hopefully I can fill in and do a great job. I have the most wonderful guest here with me today. I'm so excited. Ms. Gina Brown. She is one of my favorite humans on the planet. And I'm going to let her introduce herself. Good morning, everybody, or afternoon, wherever you are. Um, I'm Gina Brown. I am a woman living with HIV 29 years. Um, I live right outside of New Orleans in a little town called Chalmette. And um, I'm a mom, a grandmom, and I just really, really adore our community, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. Um when I think of community and when I was thinking about who would be great um, on this particular episode with me, you were the first person that I thought of. I can remember sitting across the table from you in New Orleans. Um, I was visiting my mom and you invited me over and we had spaghetti. And it was one of the best conversations that I can remember having um, about being HIV positive. And so um, we're going to be talking today about loneliness and isolation and building community and building a village. And so I couldn't imagine anybody that I would want to have sat across from me to help talk about the importance of, of building a village, because I consider you to be part of my village. So um, why don't we go ahead and jump in um, and kind of get started about the topic? Because I think it's something that um, we need to discuss. It Loneliness and isolation impacts the entire community when we're talking about um, as it relates to HIV. But um, there is absolutely research that shows um, that it, number one, um, can impact the way that people take their meds. Um, and then for those of those of us that are aging, aging is, is already a factor in loneliness and isolation. And then when you add HIV on top of that, um, it kind of compounds the problem. So uh, my first question for you is, um, what are some of, what do you think the, the, the single biggest factor in loneliness and isolation is when it comes to HIV? I think for, um, for most people who are living with HIV, I'm talking younger people, um, it's probably the stigma. But as you start aging with HIV, it becomes something bigger than the stigma, right? It becomes a, a matter of safety. You know, as you get older, you isolate more for your safety. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I think about safety, when you said that, the first thing that popped in my head was trauma, right? Because trauma impacts how we feel. Um, it impacts how we feel about being safe, it impacts the relationships that we have and whether or not we feel safe in those relationships. Um, and so um, are there ways that we can kind of balance out the need for safety as we age? Yes, that's where community comes into play. Um, you know, we, we're constantly building community in HIV, right? When we first come into this thing, we may um, be in community with people who are more newly diagnosed. And then as we start um, aging with HIV, we start, we get in community with people who are also aging with HIV. So you can do things um, as a group, which, which alleviates some of that concern for safety, right? So maybe you and your girlfriends want to go to dinner just once a week, you know, to get out of the house, doing things like that. Um, I think it plays a, a huge part in how well we do health-wise. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you were talking about that, um, 
one of the about coming into the community first and stigma being a big deal. But I think about aging, especially people that have been living with HIV for a long time. There's a certain amount of PTSD that comes with that, right? And um, maybe some survivor's guilt. Do you feel any of that? Every day. You know, when I first started doing this work in 2002, I was a peer advocate at a Part D program. Part D was for women, infant, children, and youth. Well, it still is. And um, it was four of us on the on a peer advocacy team. And I'm the only one still alive on that initial team. And I think about that all the time. Like, why? You know, um, not that I want to be gone, but what did I do or what was different that kept me from um, getting an AIDS um, diagnosis or what we now call late stage HIV diagnosis and what motivated me to keep trying? And I'm not saying that the women who passed didn't try. I'm just saying, what, what was different? Why am I still here? You know, I've seen, and like you said, PTSD, I've seen a lot of debt in HIV. You know, I was diagnosed in 1994 um, when medications were like just becoming a real thing. When, when um, in 94, you still, when you went into a, a building, you needed to know only one thing, and that was where's the restroom? You know, that's what, what drove us back then. Um, but people died. Either from, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just agreeing with you. It just, it's, it's heartbreaking. It is, you know, and, and to still be here 29 years later and still try to figure it out, you know? Yeah, that, um, when I started nursing, I started working, um, my second job was in an HIV clinic. Um, and I feel like in some ways I cheated some of the stigma that comes along with an HIV diagnosis because I was working in an environment where it, it was talked about openly, right? And um, I didn't have to feel like I had to hide it. Um, and I know, um, I know a lot of nurses um, that don't talk about their status be for fear of retaliation or being fired or what have you. But the other blessing that I had in working in this clinic was that I was working around a lot of long-term survivors. And so I had the opportunity to listen to some of their stories and I had the opportunity to kind of understand how deeply that PTSD impacts how people socialize. Um, and a lot of the, the people that I talked to um, when I was working there weren't comfortable being in open spaces or weren't comfortable being around people who weren't a part of the HIV community. But I also feel like there needs to be a balance of um, who we're around so that it doesn't contribute in kind of an off way to that isolation. Do you think there's a benefit in being around other than folks who are living with HIV? Definitely. And I think about um, my first job as a peer advocate, right? So I was working as a peer advocate. I was li living with HIV. All of my friends were living with HIV. So I was surrounded by HIV all the time. And then in 2005, when Hurricane Katrina happened and I found myself in Dallas, I found myself with a different friend group. You know, some people were living with HIV, some weren't. So I didn't always have to be on with HIV. I could talk about gardening or I could talk about, you know, the kids and not always talk about HIV. And it plays a huge part in, in how we do mentally, I think. You know, I mean, I'm, I, look, y'all, I'm saying this is anecdotal. I don't have any, I don't have a research <laughs> protocol that I can quote. But it just feels good when you're not always in the same box. I absolutely agree with that. I think um, it's kind of like if you um, talk about um, how young folks keep you young um, and hanging out with young people keeps you young. I think sometimes hanging out with people who are not living with HIV um, gives you a break, a much needed break. Um, from the heaviness and um, 
if you can get past the sense of otherness, I think sometimes that comes because I think that's another thing that contributes to um, us feeling isolated is the sense of being other um, that comes with living with HIV. And so sometimes being around um, people where you don't have to think about that is a good thing. Um, so kind of going back to talking about stigma, because I think stigma is a factor. Um, what ways do you use to fight that, that self-stigma, that voice? Um, and maybe you don't have that at this point um, in your diagnosis. Is that still even a factor for you at the age that, that we are at right now? It is. It is. And I'd be lying if I told you it didn't. Well, so I'm in recovery also. So that's what we call sneaking thinking, right? It sneaks up on you. Sometimes you don't even realize it's happening. Um, I've been in spots where I've heard someone say something about HIV and I immediately got that heart palpitation and hands got, got um, sweaty and, you know, my tongue was dry. And normally I'm that person that's going to talk about the misinformation or but you're not always in the in an environment to do that so it does come back um I'm not dating right now and it's not because I don't want to date I don't want to have the conversation I do not want to have the conversation and I don't I don't want to um no one wants to be rejected and a part of my life and a part of my journey or possibility is always a rejection. So I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I'm good over here with my with my mega stuffed Oreos and my Doritos and dip. I am good. <laughs> you are speaking my language. Um, the frustration that comes with um, dating and having to disclose. I don't think people, nobody outside of this process, this life process with HIV can understand what disclosure is like. Like the last probably three people that I have disclosed to have been, um, I can't cuss, but I want to I just put it that way. And so when I say I fully understand that, I fully understand that. And, you know, at this age, at 50, I really would like to have somebody by my side. Um, I would like to have somebody to, can I, you know, go outside and change the oil in my car if I had to, but do I want to? No. Um, and so that definitely is um, one of the ways that I think that self-stigma can show up because if you get too far into the weeds with thinking that everyone is going to going to reject you, it definitely becomes an issue. Um, so I definitely feel you on that. I want to go back. Um, Bose um, put a comment in and she said, I still can't believe that I could still be alive, still be alive or living for over 20 years now and aging with HIV. Thank you to all of the friends and family that have given me the courage and the strength to move on. So that brings me to friends and family. Um, you know, there's both sides of the coin. There are there's friends and family that absolutely love and and protect us in this process, and then there's those that not so much. And so, um, how important is it to build that village of family and friends as we age? It's extremely important. You know, um, friends friends will all no. Let me take that back. Friends may not always be there. But who you can always depend on is family. And for me, I am really blessed. I have a family that um, embraced me, that didn't shun me. Um, I had to do some education, don't get me wrong. You know, it wasn't like they all knew. But I remember one of my cousins, I, I was putting stuff on Facebook all the time about HIV. So she called me up and she was like, hey, why are you always talking about HIV? And I was like, wait, you don't, you don't know? <laughs> And she's like, no. So once I told her um, everything about it, she was really concerned, not with would she get it or anything, but making sure that other young people in our family knew. So whenever we would have a cookout or something, she would say, get on the bike and say, Gina got something to say. <laughs> and I'm like, I got nothing to say. But I would. I would um, encourage my family. I would tell them, you know, where they can go and get tested, things like that. Um, 
And I see that, Krista, yes. Um, there's a chosen family and a biological family, and I've been blessed with both. Y'all know I am a community mom. I have 27 kids and um, way more nieces and nephews and grandkids and great-grandkids. And that chosen family is everything. You know, I know I can depend on them because those are not my friends. They're my family. Yep. And if Krista hadn't said it, I certainly was going to, because it is true for some people, um, they don't have that family support. And so they get the blessing of being able to choose who their family is. And I think that that's just as important. I also think that it's really important to consider those things um, when you are choosing your family and when you are building your village, you know, you want to choose those people that um, not only can support you, but I also think it's important that we choose people that have different skill sets Um and different strengths than we have so that we can lean on them um, when we need support in those areas. And I also think there's an element, um, I, before I continue, Griselle says, Gina is the mom to all the verticals, um, those that are, that perinatally acquired HIV. Um, I think that's, that's beautiful. I love that. Um, and that just made me forget what I was going to say, but we we're talking about friends and, um, um, choosing your friends and, and building your your village. And so what other ways um, can you create a community or can you create a village other than just friends? Are there other ways that we can kind of incorporate and get out of ourselves and into the the world, not just the community, but out into the world? What suggestions do you have for that? Well, um, one of the things I was thinking about um, was the mentor-mentee um relationship because we should all all right i'm gonna use um i statements i don't like that we stuff i like to say i it is always my 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 hope that i can help mentor someone so that i can move to the next seat and they can take this seat and we can keep playing leapfrog and we can keep moving along um until i'm over there and then they're mentoring new people that's how we build community too. Um, and a mentorship does not have to be an HIV mentorship, right? It can be somebody that you can get a mentor that's doing things that you want to do. Or you can get a mentee that that maybe the mentee doesn't is not living with HIV, but they have a desire to do public speaking and they see me as that person that can help them with that. So doing things like that. Another thing that can get us outside of ourselves and more into a greater purpose, I think, is when I volunteer. So when I get out of my house and I go into community, and it doesn't have to be a health fair, you know, it can be a library, it can be children's hour, it can be whatever that that feels good to me, that's getting me out of, you know, that that environment that I'm so used to being in. Yeah, um, Olivia says. Do you find that it's hard to make friends as grown-ups? Where do you connect with like-minded folks when, where there's a chance to go a little deeper? And for myself, I absolutely find that it's harder to make friends as an adult. And um, it seems like it should be easier because you have wisdom and you have this sense of, you know, what you will and won't put up with in a relationship kind of thing. But the, the other part of it is that you do have the trauma. You do have all of the um, the negativity that kind of tail ends a, a lifelong um, journey with making and and um, making friends and having something happen in those relationships. And so I think it is harder in a lot of ways. Um, and then in other ways, it's not. Um, I think the fact that we kind of find a space where we know what we can and can't deal with helps a little bit. What do you think? I agree. I agree. As an adult, sometimes um, I do walk into spaces a little jaded and thinking like, <laughs> you know, and not even knowing a person, right? Not even knowing a situation, but trying to judge that book by its cover and thinking, I can remember what, you know, this is going to sound really silly. But when I was in seventh grade, I met a girl that talked just like that and act like that. And she turned out to be horrible. So I'm not even going to put myself out to be your friend. I'm going to stay over here. 
And we should never be that way, but sometimes we are because of things that happen in our past. It's easier for me to, to mother. <laughs> it is. It's easier for me to mother people than to um, be a friend. You know. Do you um, remember when that shifted? Yes. You- yes. I remember um, it was around, it had to be like around 2012, somewhere around there. And that's when I I got the bulk of my children. And um, it was just easier to give the advice that they would ask me. It was easier to to embrace them and let them embrace me for some strange reason, you know. Um, And I'm still like that. Whenever I'm out at a conference, whenever I'm in that environment, I am collecting more more children. <laughs> yep. That's I, uh, more friends. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm, I was trying to remember at what point I became auntie. Like I used to be friend and now I'm at that stage where I'm, where I'm auntie. Um, and I actually, I like that. I like the idea of um, being able to share some of the wisdom that I've gained um, over the years to help maybe help somebody make the same mistakes, not make the mistakes that I made. Um, I, you know, I believe there's value in making mistakes and learning from them, but I also believe that there is definitely value in not having to, um, make mistakes that are completely life-changing such as an HIV diagnosis. Right. And so that's why I think it's important that, um, we speak out um, someone in the comments um, posted about the A Girl Like Me community, which I think is the most amazing community on the face of the planet because it allows us an opportunity to be vulnerable and see ourselves reflected off of each other. Um, this comment right here about Maria um, Mejia, who is a wonderful, wonderful advocate and person, she just posted about having her 35th anniversary of her HIV diagnosis coinciding with her 50th birthday, which I think is something to be celebrated. And I think sometimes people get confused that we celebrate um, surviving HIV, but I think that's important, right? Um. For things like um, hitting milestones, right? What attitude do you have when you face milestones? Because I was diagnosed at 40. And so kind of like the same thing, not nearly the time that Maria has, but when I hit 50, I was hitting 50 and 10 years being diagnosed. So how do you face those milestones? Or what advice would you give to someone who doesn't, who's not feeling good about approaching a milestone like that? So right before I made, well, the year before I made 50, I would tell my niece, um, may she rest in peace. She was my best friend. I would tell her every day, <laughs> I said, Kenda, you know, I'm about to be 50, huh? <laughs> and she told my sister, she said, if Gina tell me that one more time, I'm a papa. <laughs> but I was so excited because I was diagnosed at 28. And when I was diagnosed, I didn't hear you have HIV. The nurse looked at me. Well, she didn't even look at me. She put papers in front of her face and she said, you have, a, you have AIDS and you're going to die. And because she was a nurse, I thought I was going to die within a year. So all these years later, I'm still alive. I need to celebrate this. Um, some of y'all know when I had my 25th seroversary, the day that, you know, that I seroconverted or found out my, about my seroconversion, I had a party. I had a celebration because I was still here. Um, next year it'll be 30 years. I'm having a celebration. Y'all save the date, April 6th, New Orleans. I am having another celebration because I am still here. Um, I would tell anyone who's struggling with celebrating, you don't have to celebrate the fact that you have HIV. What I would tell you, you can celebrate is the fact that you're here. You know, um, we are... I mean, what a time to be alive, y'all. This is 2023. Medications have changed so much. I remember when I was on 17 pills a day and would ask myself every day, how am I going to do this? But I did it. The meds are so, uh, I'm not going to say easy to take because 
we all have our own struggles. But I will say that there's one pill once a day. They're injectables. There's this. There's that. It's so different. Celebrate just being here. Celebrate your sister or your brother. Celebrate our community. You know, um, there's so many things for us to be grateful. I will, once again, using I statements, there's so many things that I am grateful for, you know. Absolutely. Um, it actually, that that kind of um, Masanya, one of our cab members, um, who's also wonderful um, in the community, asked, um, she said, I would love to hear your thoughts on at what point in a person's diagnosis should they start talking about aging with their diagnosis? And she said, I know aging can be defined based on our ages. However, does HIV in the diagnosis have an aging process? She said, like, is my HIV a preteen at 12 years old? <laughs> I love that. That's, um, that's a, it actually could be a teenager at this point. Um, but no, I, I know for me, so when I, I was diagnosed at 40, right? And so when I would say, you know, I got diagnosed at 40, a lot of like the old, the long-term survivors, the older folks would say, oh, you're still a baby. But I feel like I'm aging. Like at that point I was aging. And I know a lot of people feel like the cut or the, the age is 50, right? How do you feel about that? Is it when you feel like you're starting to age or do you think HIV has an age at which you, you start to feel aging is a thing? I think just like in life, right? When we're born, the moment we, we, we exit our mom's womb, we start, we start aging. So you get a diagnosis and however you want to define it, you know, um, you can, the, the aging process is always going on. I think I kind of looked at the fact that I was aging with HIV when it was maybe about 12 or 13 years in. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> what year is this? <laughs> what year is this? I'm still here. I'm aging. I'm moving along that spectrum. Um, and, and, and it feels really good. You know, um, I'm one of those people when people say long-term survivors, I always bring up our verticals. Don't leave out the verticals. You know, we're looking at people who've been living with HIV 25 years, but we have verticals who are 30, 35 years old. So let's not leave them because they're long-term survivors too. As a matter of fact, they are the true long-term survivors because they were diagnosed when there were no medications. A lot of the kids had to go up to NIH and they want studies. So we need to like really tip our hats to them because without them, where would we be? Yeah, so I, I absolutely. I'm sorry going way over there, y'all. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it actually, it needs to be said. And um, it is... I think it's a, a a good thing that now in more spaces, you're starting to, um, Griselle said she's going on 37 years. I think it's a beautiful thing that now in more spaces, we are starting to hear, um, you know, that they not to leave verticals behind, not to leave those that, that perinatally acquired HIV behind and to include them in conversations about aging because facts are facts. I know for me at 50 right now, there are things that are happening that I'm like, okay, is it natural aging process or is it the HIV? Right. Um, uh, Krista said that um, Kim and Portia used the term lifetime survivors. And I like that. I actually like that a lot better than any of the other terms. And I need to make it a habit to use that um, because it is like your body. HIV has an effect on your body. It's an inflammatory process. Um, and whether it's controlled or not, it's still a process that's going on. Um, in your body. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge that it's not about the age as much as about the length of time. And I am one of those people that believes that how you feel mentally and how you speak to yourself and how you talk to yourself has an effect on your body. And so that's why I think it's so important that we use language like lifetime survivors. Um, and so, uh, by the way, Maria says, I love me some Gina. So I'm not the only one in the community. I know I'm not the only one. <laughs> um, Krista said that COVID causes caused a lot of isolation as well. 
Um, and do you find it hard to get out of the mindset of quarantining? It's so funny. Before COVID, I was like, you know what? I don't want to be around people. I just want to be at home and rest. And then COVID happened and it was like, I wanted to see everybody. I wanted to be around people. I was like losing my mind trying to figure out how I can, you know, connect with people. And what I do now is um, if we can do some outside stuff, let's do that. I'm not as um, like, oh my goodness, I can't go in your house. I'm, that's not me. But I am still aware that COVID is still a thing. You know, so when I travel, I wear a mask. Um, I do all of those precautions. But as far as being around people, I'm around um, my circle because I need them. You know, um, COVID also taught me what it probably was like for people in the beginning of this epidemic, that isolation, because people weren't isolated because they wanted to be. They were isolated because they had to be. You know, families didn't want you around them. Community didn't want you around them. So people stayed in and people died. And I think of COVID the same way, you know. Um, so there was that. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, so it's really strange for me because COVID didn't hit me the same way as it did a lot of people because I was a nurse, right? So I was considered essential. So I was still going to work. Um, there was a point in time I was doing home health and um, there was a decision made that we would not go into patients' homes unless it was critical for us to do so. Um, and so that cut back on that a little bit. But I did find that when I started going back into patients' homes, there was like this, this struggle between them wanting to have you there because they hadn't seen people and also this, um, this struggle of, am I going to be safe while you're here? And um, it relates, I think it, in a lot of ways, it related back to the way, like you were saying, the way that it was in the beginning of, of this epidemic and um, the fears that people had. Um, and for me now, I find it harder to be around people than I did during COVID. Like, you know, I've been to a couple of conferences and having so many people in the same space, in my space, has been hard um, to kind of over, and that was never me. And so I'm trying to figure out where the balance is now. So definitely. Um, Maria said she hates COVID. Um, and I actually like this other comment that she made, which she said uh, in regards to HIV, that it's not a death sentence, but it is a life sentence. And so I think that kind of reminds me of the fact that as we age, we are living a life with HIV. Um, and you mentioned getting together with friends and volunteering. I think those are great ideas um, for how to balance and combat some of this loneliness and some of this isolation. Um, I also, um, I know uh, the Well Project had a program, um, Living Well at Home, which I thought was a great idea. And I think that that's a way for people to feel connected and be connected, even if you can't physically be with someone. So it was a lesson, COVID was a lesson in using technology to your advantage, I think a little bit. Do you like technology or do you hate technology? I hate technology. You know, I'm 57. So I grew up during a time when you didn't even have call waiting on your phone. Um, if somebody called your line and you were on the line, <laughs> they got a busy signal. You know, um, there was no texting. There was no email. You know, everything you did, you did in person. You connected with people. And technology, to me, kind of pulled us away from each other. Even though during COVID, it brought people together who otherwise couldn't be together. So I, I respect that. But I really don't like technology. I, um, if one of my kids texts me, I call them. They get, they get mad with me. And they say, why didn't you just respond by text? <laughs> Why didn't you just call me? You know, why didn't I hear your voice ask me that question? So, yes. <laughs> I actually, um, I love technology. And it's really, 
And that's the funny contrast because I feel like people either love it or hate it. And I like it because um, it is a way for us to stay um, connected where we other might, otherwise may not be. Um, and even though people are not always honest on social media about what's going on in their life, it at least gives you an opportunity to, to kind of peek into, you know, what your family is doing and what your friends are doing. Um, and my son, um, funnily, I prefer text. Like, I would rather that you text me than call me. And I think that's because I did a million years of customer service on the phone talking to people. So by the end of the day, I will be tired and I don't want to use my voice. But my son will call me, but not leave a voicemail and then not text me what he wants because he knows it's going to make me call him back. So he uses it to his advantage. Um, and uh, 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 Cece said, I'm with the kids, Gina. I texted, not called. <laughs> And it definitely, and it, it's not even really an age thing. Um, she said, I'm not leaving a voicemail. <laughs> I don't, it, it's not an age thing. I think it really is either you love it or you hate it. But I do feel like, um, like with programs like, like the World Project Stay at Home, it was a way and is a way for people who may be scared to go out um, or may be scared to interact, to stay connected. And I think the connectedness is, is really what's important um, when we're talking about um, isolation and loneliness, because that, um, that feeling that you're all by yourself um, creates this spiral of negative talk and negative thinking. And um, it's really important not to get caught in that space. Um, is there, what, you know what, this is what I'm curious about. What is your favorite thing to do outside of, um, outside of your home? Like, what do you enjoy doing? What's your hobby? So my hobby is inside of my home because I love to cook. I love to cook. So I watch um, Chop all the time on any of the cooking shows getting recipes. I'm going to try things out on people. And my grandson always says, Gigi, you would not get chopped if you cooked this. <laughs> I love to cook. Um, I love to read. I am getting more into walking. Um, this has been like a three, four year um, struggle for me, getting out and walking and just being out in the world like that. Um, there's a nice park not far from my house. I go walk there sometimes. But I really love to cook. So, and not bake, y'all. I'm not a baker. I, I did learn how to bake cakes during COVID, but nobody ate them but me. So I had to stop baking the cake because I would eat the whole thing by myself. So, <laughs> but gumbo, red beans, anything like that, call me. I'm your girl. I make a mean pot of gumbo too. Oof. And my dad had the best red bean and rice um, recipe. And I, I still remember it. I'm, I'm missing something and I don't know what it is. And maybe we should talk about it offline. But um, the reason I ask that is because I, I think that people forget that there are other things that you can do. There are hobbies. There are um, um, things that you can get into that can help you get out of the mindset of um, feeling so alone and feeling um, by yourself. And um, the other thing that I kind of want to touch on and talk about is... Um, the importance of staying and continuing to take your medication um, when you're going through a space where you're feeling lonely and isolated. Because like I said, at the top of the, um, at the, top of the hour, that there is a study that shows um, being lonely and being isolated impacts the way people take their meds. They don't take their medication. Um, and so what way, what words of encouragement would you offer to someone when it comes to, because I know we talked about meds, but what encouragement would you offer to someone when it comes to taking their pills? Because I struggle with taking my pills and, and that's just me being honest. So when I was diagnosed in 94, the first nurse who told me I had AIDS and I was going to die, she did one thing right that day. She got another nurse to come down and talk to me. Um, I was pregnant with my daughter when I was diagnosed. So this other nurse, when she came down, she told me if I did three things, I could live. And because this one person said I was going to die, when she said you can live, I, I swear if I was a dog, my ears would have perked up because I heard everything she said. She said if you attend all of your medical appointments, take your medication exactly as prescribed, and learn everything you can, you can learn about this virus, you can live. And I did that. So I took it really up really bought into my health care from the beginning. I took it serious that 
this medication is the thing that's going to keep me alive. Not knowing anything about the medication, but just thinking that, you know, um, it's been 29 years and I've missed three doses. And the reason I know I've missed three doses is because the first one was in 2005 with Hurricane Katrina. It took me 16 hours to make a five hour drive to Texas. And I was like, I'm going to sleep, forget that medicine. The second time I was having a colonoscopy and the doctor said, don't take your medicine. I didn't know that I could take my HIV medicine, so I just didn't take anything. And the third time I did an overnight trip to um, speak at a college and I forgot it. Um, I was like, all right, it happened. I would tell anybody who's struggling, talk to somebody who's been in that, that, that same place. You know, there are a lot of us who have struggled with taking the medication every day. Um, I'm one of those people that don't give me antibiotics because as soon as I start feeling better, I'm going to forget about those antibiotics. So I don't take that medication every day. So I understand, you know, when people um, struggle and I'm never one to tell people, oh, you better take your medicine. What I want to know is what is the thing that that's preventing you from taking it? I've had people say, when I, when I look at that pill, it reminds me of HIV. And I just don't want to be reminded. So we have to think of another way that we can deal with this. That's why I'm so grateful for injectables now, y'all. I really am. Because that, that's going to free a lot of people up. Sometimes it's psychological why we don't want to take the medicine. Sometimes the medications, there's still side effects. There are still side effects. And don't know if you have to go to work and you're working at a fast food place, you can't run to the bathroom every time you feel that little something in your stomach. So people say, I'm not going to take it because I have to work. Whatever it is, you know, um, find somebody who may have struggled in that same way. Talk to them. I will tell you, um, I take it every day. Do I want to take it? Nope. If I could throw that medicine out the window, I would, but I know I can't and not, and not expect to be here, not expect to be healthy or as healthy as I can be. Yeah. And all of that is um, kind of the conversations that I have with myself. Um, you know, I, I've been through phases where I've tried to trick myself into taking my meds Um Krista says, at some point, most of the funding all went away for peer support groups and buddy systems to help check in on each other. Absolutely. And I think that peer support is one of the biggest ways that we survive um, this process, right? So we all we obviously want to get from survival to thriving, but sometimes survival is the best that we can do. And having that peer support makes all of the difference in the world. Um, and so I absolutely agree with you that finding someone who has been where you are um, can help you get past that and help you get through the hump and help you get through the hard times, um, particularly when it comes to HIV. And I think that that translates into how you fight feeling lonely and feeling isolated too. If you can find one person that can draw you out, um, then you're one step closer to feeling better. Because I think that's part of it, right? You start to feel lonely, you start to feel isolated, you feel down, which leads to depression um, or anxiety. And then you're stuck in this rut where you're going around and around on this wheel and you can't get off. Um, and so there is definitely something to be said for not only volunteering, but social clubs. You know, maybe you're not a social club person, but you won't know until you try. Um, and I think. Um, for us, as we age, there are other things, there are other factors that start to come into play. So if you're staying stuck and lonely in your house and you're not getting out, that means you're not exercising, you're not moving your body. And frailty is a thing for, for us living with HIV um, as we age. And so that's one of the ways that you can combat some of the frailty is by keeping your body moving. Um, and then um, there's also this, this uh, aspect of um, HIV fatigue, right? And so the best way to, to battle fatigue is to keep moving, but it's hard to move when you feel fatigued. And so all these little ways that we have to push each other and push ourselves to get out and get into the world um, are important. And, and 
Um, Maria in the comments said that adherence is extremely important and adherence is extremely important. And it's not just adherence to your meds, it's adherence to your mental health too, right? Don't you think so? Taking that time to, um, taking the time for yourself. Um, and so that's my next thing is self-advocacy, right? So um, how, how does someone who's not used to advocating for themselves or speaking up for themselves learn how to speak up for themselves or learn how to take that step out into the community or learn how to take that step out into the world so that they can try to not feel so alone? What would you say? So the first thing is, remember what you hear when you're on a plane. When you're on a plane, they always tell you to put your oxygen mask on first. Because if you don't and you try to help someone else before helping yourself, you can pass out and then it can be bad for both of y'all. So you want to make sure that you're taking care of you so that you can help other people, right? Um, when I think about when I first started doing this work, it was hard for me to do the work for me because I still had a lot of trauma and a lot of um, pain that I wasn't ready to face yet. So it was easier for me to uh, concentrate on other people. It was easier for me to help you cry than for me to cry. And I learned that um, I developed an ulcer. Um, I had rapid thoughts. I couldn't sleep at night. Um, all of these things were going on. And that was because I was trying to take care of everybody and I wasn't taking care of me. If you're not taking care of you, you're going to break down. You are the most important person in this whole equation. You know, um, and when I think about care, right, and we talk about self-care a lot, but we talk about self-care as if it's a, um, an emergency stop, you know, when, when you've been so stressed out or so many things have happened, then there's ding, ding, I need the, the self-care. Self-care is something that we should do every day. Even if it's only drinking water, that's self-care. Um, I get up in the morning, I meditate, and I center myself. I don't try to center the HIV community anymore. I center Gina. And then Gina can do the best work for the HIV community after that. But I can't do it if I'm broke now. I can't do it if I'm crying. I can't do it if I'm um, um, transferring or there's some transference of or intermingling of our, our feelings or our emotions. I'm not you and you're not me. So I got to look at me first take care of me. And then when you come and you say, Gina, can you help me with this? Then I can help you with it, but I can't do it for you. And that's something I had to learn. It was so painful learning that because I did want to save the world. You know, I had a therapist and we were talking once and he said, you know why it's so painful for you? And I said, why? He said, because you start out at 360 feet and then you fall. He said, instead of standing, he said, how tall are you? I said, five, five. He said, instead of standing, five, five. You want to take care of everybody and you're not taking care of you. And that's the truth. You know, we have to take care of ourselves, y'all. We have to make sure that um, we're putting that oxygen mask on. We have to make sure that that we're not, we're not gravitating to people because they have the pain we have. And we think if we fix their pain, our pain is going to miraculously go away. That's not true. You know, so we, we do have um, an obligation to self. And I'll tell you this, if, if we're doing this work together and I see you're constantly coming to look at my issues or, or we're not, you're not looking at your own, I'm going to call you on that. I'm going to call you on that. And I hope you call me on it, you know. Yeah. There's two things that I took from that that I think are really important. One is calling each other out and holding each other accountable. Um, there are times when my friends have held me accountable for things. Did I resent it? Yes. But do I recognize the importance of it? And did it help me? Yes, absolutely. And so um, I think that that is a critical part of um, having a village, right, is people that will not only support you, but that will hold you accountable. Um, and then the other thing that I was thinking about when you were talking about self-care, shout out to Olivia who said bath fizzies, because those are one of my favorite things. Um, I think it's really important that we remember when we're talking about self-care that self-care at some point becomes a band-aid if you're not dealing with the traumas that are behind it, 
right? Like if you don't address your triggers, all of the self-care in the world is not going to make a difference because you're going to continue to be triggered over and over again. And so when it comes to taking care of yourself, it's not just the physical part. It's not just taking your medication. It very much is um, remembering that you have to deal with the triggers in order to move forward. Um, otherwise, you stay stuck. So self-care, yes, but self-care should include mental self-care and you know mentally taking care of yourself. Um, Krista says that's always a tricky part, crossing boundaries when you're checking in on people. But her motto tends to be when in doubt, reach out. And and that's actually a good motto. I think that's a good motto. Um, people can get upset with you, but at least you've made the effort. And for two seconds, whether or not they choose to accept it or not, you've made them think about the space that they're in and where they're at and, and maybe some ways that they need to try to work to get out of it. So definitely. I just love talking to you. Um, so um, how do you feel that, um, I guess, no, let's, let's do it this way. Um, in what ways do you feel like healthcare um, can support us or healthcare is not supporting us when it comes to um, the mental health and, and um, the isolation factors that affect us as we age? I think um, sometimes healthcare, the healthcare providers don't understand that when we walk in the room and we're angry, we're not angry, we're in pain. And I don't think they recognize that all the time. Another thing I don't think that we talk about enough um, when we're talking about HIV and aging are those on that, that the road to aging is we're not as swift as we used to be. So we need our healthcare providers to understand that. You know, um, I think about people who have cognitive issues and it may be impacting how they're taking their medication. And instead of the healthcare provider just constantly berating them and saying, you're not adhering, you're not adhering, finding out or doing some kind of assessment to find out if they're dealing with some cognitive things and then creating a mechanism where you can help them with that. Um, back in the day, and I'm sorry for always going back in the past, but they used to give you beepers because you had to take your medication at a certain time. And it's just like the peer program, Krista, when I think about that would be so helpful to people who have cognitive issues, right? A beeper or some kind of text message saying it's time or something like that. Um, I don't think healthcare providers really, this is going to sound really bad, y'all, but I have to say it, y'all know I'm honest. I don't think they expected us to still be here. I really don't. I don't, I don't think they wanted us to die, but I don't think they expected us to be here and to think of how, as we're aging, how they should change the way that they're providing healthcare to us. You know, um, it's so many things, and I think about that a lot, you know, when it comes to the healthcare. I think that's a fair assessment. I really do. I think it's a fair assessment. Um, I think that um, the truth is that HIV is not, um, how do I say this without sounding bad? Um, it was an emergency at one point, right? Because people were dying. And now that it's less of an emergency, um, people don't recognize that while it's not an emergency, there's still urgency. There are still people's lives that are being impact impacted. There are still um, things that need to be done and care that needs to be given. And um, the problem right now is, and I, I, I struggle with the word geriatric, right? Because it, it, in and of itself, it implies, you know, old or elderly. But the fact is, once you turn 50, you start moving into that realm of where you're going to need geriatric care. And I don't think that there's enough providers that that understand, enough geriatric providers that understand HIV. And so we have to somehow very quickly bridge the gap between knowledge, urgency, um, and 
and aging, right? Because it all is, it's all intersecting for millions of us right now. Um, half the people living with HIV are over 50. That's a, that's a crazy statistic. Um, because like you said, I don't think they, ex they expected us to still be here. And so somebody needs to find a sense of emergency urgency um, surrounding this. So definitely that, that's a good point. And hopefully there's some clinicians and providers that are listening because I'm a fan of each one teach one, you know, take the little punch on the chin, but learn from it so we can move forward um, and, and help a whole generation of folks that absolutely need it. Um, so we're getting closer to time. Um, and I hate for the conversation to end. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention that I forgot to mention earlier is um, they've been posting um, samples of blogs in the chat. And blogging is a great way to kind of battle some of that isolation and loneliness, I think, right? Uh, go ahead. Now I was just gonna say this. Just Whenever I um, had something that I, that was like burning in me that I needed to get out and I would write it down and send it in as a blog. I knew that although it was helping me, it would help other people too. Because a lot of times we have questions, but we don't want to appear stupid. So we don't ask them. So that brave one person who asked that question, we all be <laughs> we're so happy to ask it, you know. So yes, blogging is a huge way to um, combat some of this. That was one of the reasons that um, when, when I first joined the A Girl Like Me community um, and they ask you, why do you want to be a part of the community? And my thing was because I wanted to see a little bit of myself reflected in other people and vice versa, because I think that's so important. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't say, please take the evaluation. Um, it's very quick, very short, but it helps us with our programming. It helps us find the way ways to improve um, and ways that we can continue to serve you all in the community. And with that, we are at time, Ms. Gina. I am so glad that you joined me. It was such a pleasure. I know um, folks in the chat were saying how much they love you. And I just, I have to echo that. The way that you talk about um, community and the way that you talk about this life, um, navigating this life with HIV is very comforting. Um, and it, uh, Krista said, still waiting on the, it's getting hot in here, Gina Block. Oh, listen, listen, I think I know what she's talking about. And I had my first real, my real, real hot flash and oh child, that's a whole, that is literally a whole other, a girl like me live session in and of itself. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Any final words real quick? Thank you for having me, Bridget. This this has been a pleasure having this conversation with you. And I just want to um, encourage everyone to please remember that the Well Project is here for us. You know, um, and, and it's a great resource to have and also to share with other people. So don't leave that out. Each one, teach one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we are here for each other and we are stronger as a village, we are we are um, we are more powerful as a village, and so I'm grateful to the Well Project for that as well. Um, I absolutely appreciate you, and um, hope that we get to do this again sometime soon because it's absolutely a pleasure. Thank y'all. Thank you all. Don't forget to take the um, evaluation. <laughs>